0: Ukraine says it's regained territory across several regions, including Kharkiv, a significant setback for Russia. So is this a turning point in the conflict and how will Moscow respond? I'm Fully Batibo and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze and help define major global stories. Well, let's bring in our guests now. In Lviv, Mikhailo Vinesky, political commentator and professor at the National University of Kyiv Mohila Academy. In Moscow, Viktor Olovich, his lead expert at the Center for Actual Politics. And in Oxford, Samuel Romani, associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. Gentlemen, welcome to you all. Thank you very much for joining us on Inside Story. Uh, Mikhailo, in Lviv, let me start with you, if I can. Remarkable advances by the Ukrainians. How have they been able to make these breakthroughs so quickly?
1: Well, in fact, we've been, I mean, at the end of the day, we've been preparing for this for a very long time. Uh, As you mentioned in the first segment of the program, uh, we were expecting a a counter-advance or a counter-attack in the south. Uh, clearly, that has uh, probably diverted some of the Russian forces away from defence uh, around the, uh, the, the northeastern part. It is important to note that the people that are actually on the ground liberating uh, the areas of Kharkiv Oblast are actually not regular army soldiers. These are people from the territorial brigades. In other words, these are people that volunteered after the Fev- February 24th. Uh, they've received significant amounts of training in the last six months, and they're very, very motivated to, uh, to uh, liberate, uh, liberate their, the, the occupied lands of their country. Mm. And I think I also wanna say that um, the fact that it has been going very, very quickly has actually been a surprise, not only to uh, those of us that are observing it, it's actually been a surprise to the Ukrainian Central Command. They were expecting this offensive to last until the end of September. Uh, well, as we see, uh, it's gone a lot quicker than expected. Uh, a lot of really motivated people. What's helped them? What's played in of- their
0: favor, you think?
1: Well, there's there's two things. First of all, uh, they've got a lot of support from the local uh, local population. I mean, the local population in Kharkiv Oblast has absolutely no desire to be occupied by the Russians, uh, and they are obviously greeting uh, the Ukrainian forces as, as liberators. Secondly, uh, the Ukrainians have a strategy of attack, and that is or a strategy of, of of military action, and that has been proven very effective. It's a strategy of decentralization. It's mm-hmm. a strategy of if you like network kind of of uh, of, of of actions um. Central commanders give sort of general directions, and then uh, the people on the ground themselves are making the decisions. And, and I they're imagine very motivated and very well-trained.
0: I imagine the military support provided by the West has also helped, but we'll come back to that in just a moment. Let me bring in Victor in Moscow. Victor, Russia's admission of a withdrawal in Izium is significant because this was, of course, a major military hub for Moscow. Uh, the Russians say they are regrouping, but I wonder how is this being viewed in Moscow. What is the reaction there? And how is the Kremlin explaining these setbacks?
2: Well, this is not the first setback uh, in Russia's military operation in Ukraine in the last six months. Several months ago, Russian forces retreated from the Kiev, from the areas of Kiev and Chernigov regions that uh, they controlled. Uh, later on, uh, the Zmini uh, island... Uh, had been uh, been lost by the Russian forces. And now we are witnessing a retreat uh, from the uh, Kharkov region, from those areas of the Kharkov region, that Russian forces controlled. This is being openly discussed uh, on uh, various panels, and Mm -hmm. uh, uh, this is being openly discussed on Russian television, uh, in Russian media. There are different reactions. But what is important uh, to state is that Russia uh, is not going to be defeated on the battlefield. Russia is a great power, and it cannot afford a military defeat. But how is is the Russian defense ministry
0: explaining these retreats? How is it justifying these retreats?
2: Well, the Russian defense ministry is being tight-lipped. It is uh, saying that a retreat has happened to prevent a large um, uh, loss of personnel, uh, and uh, that is about it. Mm. But it is being discussed on various levels, and it is, again, it is important to note that this is not uh, the end of Russia's efforts in Ukraine, and Russia will uh, continue with its special military operation in Ukraine. Uh, until it either reaches its uh, goals that were set in the beginning, mm-hmm. which seems to be very difficult at this point to, to, to forecast, or if a uh, solution, if a diplomatic solution okay. is found between uh, a solution that would involve both Russia, the West, and Ukraine. Samuel... And the Russian foreign minister, Sergey Lavrov, uh, just yesterday said that Russia is still looking for a diplomatic uh, solution to this crisis. It we're, is not we'll talk about the diplomatic... A, uh, Uh,
0: solution and and whether talks can still happen at this stage samuel romani let me bring you bring you into the conversation as victor said there it's not the first time that we're seeing a retreat from russian forces how significant are these recent gains by the ukrainians in the wider conflict is it even more significant do you think than the russian retreat from from kiev back in march
3: well, the Russian retreat from Kiev back in March was uh, a major recalibration of the mission. It marked the end of phase one of what they called the special military operation and the start of uh, phase two. So it implicitly meant that for the foreseeable future, regime change in Kiev, the overthrow of Zelensky and his replacement by a pro-Russian figure like Petriyana or Viktor Medvedchuk or someone of that ilk who had more grassroots support was not possible. So both of them are very significant, but significant for different reasons. When it comes to the... Uh, recent events in Kharkiv, the Russians' uh, military establishment appears to have been blindsided because you see it from Russian Telegram, Russian military experts were warning that what Ukraine was doing in Kherson was uh, only uh, the first phase of the operation. It was a bit of a feint. The real focus would be on a blitz for Kharkiv. And it appeared as if the Russian uh, defense ministry was caught off guard, and now they've lost their supply lines. So it's quite complicated also for their uh, campaign in Donetsk because Kupiansk and Izium are very important for the offensive operations that they're carrying out in places like Bakhmut and Solidar. Mm. And it's also coincided with Ukraine breaching into Lehman potentially, and meaning that Russia and Donetsk will be fighting an offensive operation and now a defensive operation at the same time.
0: Strategically, Samuel, what, what are the Russians missing right now?
3: Well, strategically, one of the things I think that they're having a bit of difficulty with is now supply lines. And they're going to have to rejig and figure this out because we've seen MI-26 helicopters, which can carry between 90 and 135 personnel, being carried over to bring supposed reinforcements into Kharkiv. But the problem is those helicopters are very vulnerable to man pads and other uh, defensive equipment that the Ukrainians have managed to get from NATO countries. So they're having a bit of difficulty now in terms of making sure – they don't have a repeat of what's happened in Kurzon, where you have 20,000 troops stuck there, and all the bridges are destroyed, and they're trying to build a pontoon ferry, and the Ukrainians attack that, too. And that that's their initial problem, I think, right now. Mm-hmm. And also, they need to be careful about where the Ukrainian counteroffence is going to happen next. Some people think it might go through Povolidar mm-hmm. and into Donetsk. There's apparently a movement into Luhansk, allegedly, if you believe the Ukraine, Luhansk governor, Sergei Haidai, into Lizischansk and then there's the campaign in Kherson. Ukraine might come from multiple axes or might unexpectedly concentrate on one and leave Russia blindsided again. So guessing Ukraine's next move is very difficult for the Russians.
0: Okay. Well, let's take a look at uh, the sort of support Ukraine has been getting from the West. Uh, Ukraine's recent gains have been largely due to the huge amount of Western military aid it's received in the past few months. Let's take a closer look at the numbers. In total, more than 30 countries have provided military equipment. The U.S. has contributed the most by far with at least $12.5 billion in military aid. Poland follows behind, supplying weapons worth $1.83 billion, and the UK has pledged the third largest amount with weapons worth $1.36 billion. But Ukraine's president has appealed for more funding, saying the monthly cost of defence was about $5 billion. Mikhailo Vinesky, I saw you shaking your head there. You don't seem to agree with me that that Western Military support is indeed what is helping Ukraine right now uh, regain the, the territory it's lost.
1: No, I I, I I I agree with you that Western military support is absolutely key, uh, and that we are we're receiving and we're very grateful for the fact that we're receiving a very large amount of of ammunition, of of, of, uh, of equipment, etc. And this is one of the reasons that I. I vehemently disagree with Victor, who says that uh, the Russian army cannot be defeated on the battlefield. It can be defeated, and we will see its defeat in the next little while. The the important thing to understand is that this particular gain in Kharkiv, in fact was not really supported by western military equipment um the western military equipment that has come into the country was concentrated largely in the south in the kherson region and it has been used for for example the HIMARS systems in other words the multiple rockets uh very very accurate multiple rocket systems have been used uh for uh, attacking supply lines in the south uh, in the eastern part of the country in the northeast specifically we've been seeing actually a a battle basically with old Soviet-era equipment, because these have been, uh, as I mentioned before, the territorial brigades that are actually doing the fighting. Uh, Yes, they have some man pads. Yes, they have some uh, some of the mobile equipment, um, uh, javelins and that sort of thing that were supplied at the beginning of the war. Mm. Uh, But this is not really recent stuff. Uh, What is, I think, really uh, phenomenal is that if we look at the amount of captured Russian equipment in the last two weeks... Uh, those numbers, the number of, of, of anti-tank, or excuse me, of uh, anti-personnel, or personnel carriers, uh, tank weapons, uh, and ammunition, actually outnumbers the amount of aid that we've been getting from the West. So, in fact, the largest supplier of military equipment to the Ukrainian armed forces at the moment is Russia. Victor, your response?
2: Well, Russia cannot afford a defeat in Ukraine, because a defeat in Ukraine would mean a very serious political consequences in Russia itself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, Russia is going to do uh, everything it can, and the Russian Armed Forces are going to uh, do at their utmost to prevent uh, a defeat how, in How do they Ukraine. do that? How does, does Russia that do that See, when those...
0: it seems to be short on weapons, short in ammunition, and also short of soldiers? How are they going to achieve this objective, well, uh, the... the objectives of this special operation, the... as they're calling it?
2: The initial objectives of the special military operation that were outlined by the Russian president in February are at this point difficult to achieve. Uh, the objectives now are uh, somewhat more limited. And but we see the same, you see, we see a very bellicose rhetoric from both sides, a rhetoric which cannot be realized on the front. Mm-hmm. When we discuss Russian objectives from February 24th, and uh, how unlikely it is that they will be uh, achieved in the near future. We have to also look at the objectives that Ukrainian officials are putting before their forces today and how unrealistic those objectives are. We see Ukrainian officials who say that their objective is to uh, take uh, Crimea or to take uh, the Donetsk and Lugansk regions. But is there a, is something very different about Crimea and the Donetsk and Lugansk regions from, from the Kharkiv Mikhailo region disagrees, that disagrees just been disagrees taken with by you. the Ukrainian forces.
0: you what's response? different? Excuse Let me
2: explain for a second. Excuse me.
1: What's different is it's that Crimea is ra- ethnically Crimea. Russian. It's not about taking Crimea or taking Donetsk. It's about liberating those areas that have been occupied by Russia since 2014. And this has nothing to do with ethnicity or language. Uh, And I do want to say that one of the original objectives of the special military operation, in fact, invasion, was demilitarization. Well, my dear Russian friends, you're doing a wonderful job of it. You're demilitarizing yourself on Ukrainian soil, and in fact, supplying the Ukrainians with your wonderful weapons, and at this point, running away from the battlefield. Be- the objective of liberating occupied territories on the Ukrainian side has not changed since 2014. It's something that we have been ongoing and, and, and going after in a very, Crimea is Ukrainian.
0: Okay Samuel, before I bring you back into the conversation, I'll just allow Victor to respond to, to what Mikhailo ha, has just said there. the objective and also Mikhailo, I want to hear from you whether official... people still think this is this is a special operation in Russia because this is now an all-out war from from the looks of it.
2: The official Ukrainian statements on uh, the need or the wish to take back Crimea are militarily unrealistic this is not going to happen. What's happening is that both sides are setting up unrealistic objectives. And the, uh, it seems that uh, the one of the ways that is still open to resolve this conflict is a diplomatic solution. But that solution, the diplomatic solution, is only going to be able to, to be achieved if the West uh, seeks, gives it a green light. It was the Ukrainian side, and it was the West that brought... Uh, an end to the negotiations process that was launched in Belarus in uh, in early March and then continued in uh, Istanbul, in Turkey. because was the Ukrainian side that uh, left those negotiations.
0: Okay, accusations and counter-accusations. of course, when it comes to who left the negotiations and who doesn't want to talk. Samuel, I want to bring you into the conversation on that point of negotiations. Do you think now is a good time to resume talks and negotiations to end the conflict? Or is Ukraine now in a position that it feels that it no longer needs to negotiate?
3: Well, I think that there's been an extra, a bit of radicalization on both sides. So if you look at some of the rhetoric even in Russia... After the uh, defeat in Kharkiv, you see people like Dmitry Medvedev from the Security Council talking about how our ultimate goal is the total capitulation of Ukraine, and the ultimatums, that, as Zelensky calls them, that we offered them are just like children's play. Mm. And on the other hand, you see the Ukrainians saying that there's no use in dialogue with Russia until—because we need to focus on liberating all of our territory, including Crimea. And the, given the fact that there's a, a, a rather extreme rhetoric on both sides uh, against negotiations— uh, I think it's going to be very unlikely to see diplomacy and dialogue come forward. The Russian terms in particular seem to be quite unrealistic. If you listen to Lena Slitsky from the State Duma, they're talking about the complete denazification of Ukraine, which would imply effectively Zelensky abdicating and some kind of a regime change mm. or some kind of an extinction, extinguishing of Ukrainian culture to some degree. So there's a bit of a, 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 a real sense of maximalism coming from Russia. I think that it's unlikely that we'll see peace talks being held. Turkey has expressed some optimism that we could have talks based on the Black Sea grain deal to apply to other theaters, like the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, and then maybe towards a broader settlement. Right. But they seem to be standing alone in that one. So, and, and I also think the Ukrainians now have a sense of confidence that they can really win this militarily, even if it takes months or even more, or longer than that. And I think that it's going to be ultimately uh, going to be fought on the battlefield, not the bargaining table.
0: And how safe, Samuel, do you think Putin in, in, is in all of this? There seems to be cracks now in the narrative.
3: Well, there are cracks in the narrative, but the cracks in the narrative are not coming from liberals, right? It's not the Alexei Navalny's, it's not people having anti-war demonstrations. The cracks are coming from the hardliners, the who hawks, wanted right. to really... Russia, exactly, we want to see Russia go all the way to Kiev. Russia will win this war with the maximal objectives that were stated by Putin in February 24th. And also, many people who are calling now for a total mobilization. So it's like the former Donbass commander, Igor Strokov Gurkin, and Ramzan Kadyrov, who want a reevaluation of the Russian Ministry of Defense's strategy. And a lot of the blame is being placed on Sergei Shoigu, who is a civilian, he's an emergency minister, he wasn't actually a military personnel and not necessarily on the head of Vladimir Putin at this time. Right. So Putin seems to be shielded from some of the criticism. It's going more to the defense minister. All
0: right. Victor, in Moscow, uh, there is indeed talk of total mobilization from the Hawks in Russia. Are we going to see a conscription now of Russian soldiers? And are Russians ready to fight for Russia?
2: The Russian government at this point is not looking to, uh, to impose total or mass mobilization in Russia... This would have uh, significant consequences for the Russian economy. Uh, it would uh, uh, take uh, a number of uh, able-bodied men uh, from uh, their positions I- at various uh, Russian uh, economic uh, industrial organizations and uh, put them on the front. Uh, Russia uh, is also—would uh, also have to provide uh, all of those uh, new conscripts with weapons systems uh, and uh, other military equipment, at this point, this may simply not be available. Mm. So, Russia so initially, how are they of course, when war? the special military operation... Well, at this point, at this point, it is important for Russia not to be defeated. And Russia is going to do its utmost not to suffer a defeat in Ukraine. You see, uh, a lack of a defeat in Ukraine does not mean... They achieve, is not the same as achieving all of the goals that were set uh, out on February 24th. So, both sides are essentially, both the Russian side and the Ukrainian side, are uh, the, the goals that are, were initially set or are now being set by the Ukrainian side are unrealistic. It is, uh, again, I will repeat, it is uh, hard to imagine that Russia in the near future will be able to uh, get a regime change in Kiev, and at the same okay. time, it is uh, highly unlikely that the Ukrainian side will be able to achieve all of the military goals it is setting out. Okay. It would simply be... Mikhailo- uh, next to the, the chances of rega- regaining Crimea for Ukraine are next to nil.
0: Okay, Mikhailo, I'm going to give you the last word in uh, Lviv. What else is likely to shape the situation on the ground and elsewhere?
1: Well, I'm very, I'm very pleased that, uh, that, that the, the, according to our colleagues in Moscow, the, the, the goal now of the Russians is not to win the war, it's to not be defeated. Uh, well, I want to. Uh, I, I, that, that was actually a very, very. Uh, a poignant point made by Victor. Well, in this case, the Ukrainian side is looking for victory. And victory for us is very simple it's regaining the territories that have been occupied illegally by Russia. That includes all of the territories that were demarcated and uh, have been internationally recognized uh, since 1991. Uh, it includes Crimea. Whether this is resolved 100% militarily, we will see. Mm. This is not a war that is going to end soon. Unfortunately, okay. Uh, this is probably going to last for for a while a while longer. But I have no doubt about the fact that the turning point has in fact been reached.
0: Gentlemen, thank you very much for a great discussion. Mikhailo Vinesky, Victor Olovich and Samuel Romani. That's it for the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Mohamed Elayshi, Nihad el Abedi, Abdrahman Warsame, and Jimmy Getahun. Studio sound was by Phil Morrison. The program was edited by Anil Anandan, Lynn Nguyen, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back again on Tuesday.